it seems to me there's a very rational approach in the Nordic countries to policy. Problems are examined with a view to finding solutions, and that is done in a spirit of considerable consensus. So different political parties don't oppose each other just because they're in different political parties. They actually find some areas where they, they might agree. Welcome back to Nordic Insights. I hope you all are well and here in Australia getting excited to get out of lockdown in a few weeks' time. It has taken me some time to find a new exciting guest, and I have to say I am super excited about my guest today. If you have been listening to this podcast, you know that I'm passionate to share some key findings of the well-established trends and features in the Nordics. We have discussed social, cultural, gender equality, environment, business, to mention a few. Nordics are not perfect. However, I have been hoping that some insights and ideas that have been shared by many successful Nordics and Nordic-inspired people here in this podcast would start a conversation here in Australia. When we think of policy debate in Australia, it finds its roots mostly in the US or UK. How about some Nordic policies that could be implemented in Australia? I was excited recently to discover that there is a Nordic Policy Centre established by the Australian Institute in Australia in 2018. I cannot understand how I have missed this. I am delighted to introduce Professor of Politics and Policy, Dr. Andrew Scott at Deakin University. He's also the inaugural convener of the Australian Institute Nordic Policy Centre. Professor Scott teaches Australian politics, international comparative politics, economic policy, social policy and political history. His books and articles have been extensively discussed in Australia and overseas. He has received prominent coverage in more than 100 newspaper articles, television and radio broadcasts, including recently quoted in, the, in articles in Australian Financial Review. He is the author of five books, including Northern Lights, The Positive Policy Example of Sweden, Finland, Denmark and Norway, and also co-author of the new book called The Nordic Edge, which features the effective, progressive social and economic policies of the Nordic countries and how they might work in Australia. And the new book we will discuss more in detail today. Tervetuloa, welcome, welcome, Professor Scott. Delighted to talk to you today. Thank you very much, Setu, and likewise. Let's start with the introduction. How did you get interested in Nordics and Nordic policies? Well, I'd always heard about Scandinavian countries being strong in terms of social democratic policies and trade unions and... In my earlier academic work, I did uh, a doctorate comparing the British and Australian Labor parties. And like most Australians, when I looked for international comparisons, I tended to look to other English-speaking countries. So I did that for a while, but it became increasingly clear to me that 
the British and Australian labour movements had achieved less than some other countries. So I thought, why not look at the countries where social democratic parties have been in power the longest and see what they have achieved in terms of policy? And that led me to the Nordic countries about 10 years ago. And I haven't stopped looking since because of the extent of interest I've, I've developed in, in how many policy achievements they have made and what we can learn from them. What have been your learnings so far? So how are the Nordic societies different when we compare that, them to Australia? So what would be the main key differences in, in your findings? Well, clearly each of the five Nordic countries, uh, depending on how you classify, of course, is smaller than Australia geographically and in population size. <clears throat> also, they are less multicultural than Australia, although that's changing a lot, particularly in Sweden. And, of course, they've had a longer continuous history of Europeans living there than Australia has. They're some of the important differences. One of the others that I noticed very early on is what you might call they have a more respectful public discourse in the Nordic countries, i.e. they are somewhat more polite and willing to listen to other points of view. Mm, interesting. How otherwise you perceive Nordic thinking in general and how do you think it's different like like here in Australia? It seems to me there's a very rational approach in the Nordic countries to policy. Problems are examined with a view to finding solutions and that is done in a spirit of considerable consensus. So different political parties don't oppose each other just because they're in different political parties. They actually find some areas where they, they might agree. And I think one of the contributors to that is the fact that, well, firstly, they have proportional representation. So they typically have multiple parties needed to form a majority in parliament, a coalition. And strikingly, the Swedish and Norwegian parliaments, the, the members of the parliaments are actually seated next to each other according to geography, not according to party affiliation. And you probably found as a Finnish person coming to Australia a bit odd how in Australia the parliament is set up so that people from the same parties sit together and yell at the other parties across the... Yes, we find it, I find it very odd that there's this fighting going on all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, you know, back back to uh, uh, back to the playground um, and it, people thinking up the best insults um, <laughs> to, to formulate their opponents. And that's not, you know, that's not exactly a high standard of national policymaking. So I think seeking consensus, being rational about tackling problems. The other thing I'd say is that, I mean, we have this idea of a common sense, but, but the Nordic common sense is different from the American common sense. And the Australian common sense is somewhere in between. The American common sense is all about individualism, rugged individualism, let individuals succeed, let them thrive and prosper, get out of their way. The Nordic common sense is much more about the common good, looking after other people, taking people with you, being inclusive. and Australia likes to see itself as egalitarian, has got some valuable egalitarian traditions, but has become more American. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're interested in highlighting the Nordic approaches 
which uh, the, the policies might help Australia better fulfil its egalitarian self-image. Mm, you said the words, magic words, common sense, and I, I that's what been my mantra here in Australia. Always, I always said that if I could bottle Finnish common sense, I would make millions. <laughs> you would, you would. <laughs> Now, how did the Nordic Policy Centre get started and, and what's the aim of the centre? Well, the centre got started uh, in 2018, a few years after I did a previous book which was published a few years prior to that called Northern Lights that you mentioned in your introduction. That was my first full-length product of looking at the Nordic countries over a period of some years. And I highlighted things like reduction of child poverty, uh, Finland's incredible success with schools, which is very famous, achieving, as they do in Finland, great results in terms of excellence of knowledge and learning, not by pressuring young people, but by encouraging them to be curious, to to learn through error if needs be, not to compete, um, not to get anxious and stressed highlighted those some of those issues and, and and over time that led to an approach from the Australia Institute to me to see whether some more work could be done. One of the Australia Institute's particular interests is environmental policy and energy policy and they have experts there which added to my own background which is more in social policy and they also have considerable expertise in economic policy. So we've worked together since then and this new book The Nordic Edge is a, is a product of the combined efforts of people associated with the Nordic Policy Centre. Well, let's go back to talking about what was the aim for, for the uh, sorry, Australian Institute. What's the idea how you can actually influence the Nordic policies to be uh, adapted in Australia? Australia is, well, for, for me, Australia is a very conservative country. Uh, it's very much, you know, has very strong British colonial uh, influenced by uh, American policies and a little bit Asia, so it's very, very different than how we're thinking in the, in the Nordic. So how how what's the aim? How are you actually doing the work to be able to influence that this that any of these policies would would be adapted in Australia? Sure. Well, look, you know, it's a challenge, and the Australian Institute is a Canberra-based think tank, so it seeks to influence decision makers at the highest levels in Australia. And the first thing, of course, is that if you can point to places in the world that are doing things successfully, which you are advocating for, like Finland brought in a carbon tax in 1990, Australia still doesn't have one today. Finland was the first country in the world to do that. Other Nordic countries followed. Germany followed in the late 1990s. If you can prove that policies can work in some places in the world, then that, that is powerful evidence that they might work in, in other parts of the world, including Australia. That's the first thing. Yes, there are differences. Australia has been influenced in recent decades by some social conservatism and economic neoliberalism, but Australia also has older traditions of a strong independent labour movement, which still survives today. It has similarities with the Nordic countries. They're both strong democracies, representative democracies, and that, that thing about egalitarianism, they like to see themselves as more equal than America or Britain, for example, in Australia. So if they want to live up to that and sustain that and actually actually fulfil that, then they lead, need to uh, do things, the kinds of things which the Nordic countries do, which produce, according to our evidence, much higher 
income equality and certainly much higher gender equality. And they have to consider having higher taxes and gaining more revenue to spend on things like quality schools and universities. One of the interesting things, of course, is that Finland is the happiest country in the world um, and other Nordic countries are not far behind it. Um, and it's, it's an, I know it's a nice competition between Denmark and Finland who has top place in recent years. <laughs> Iceland and Norway not far behind. Sweden slipped down a bit. I, I have noticed that in Finland, if they're ever asked, do you, do you like being held up as being the best in the world at certain things like your school education or happiness, they, they answer, no, we're not that interested in being the best in the world, but we are interested in being better than Sweden. That's right. It's much more important. <laughs> Always. <laughs> okay, now if we then talk about the the new book, The Nordic Edge, mm. which I find it really interesting, and you have highlighted some policies that you think that would be maybe interesting for for provide some uh, some assistance to Australian uh, some of the Australian problems, the topic that you uh, cover is climate and energy, work life balance, taxes, independent foreign policy, prison reform, gender equality, retaining retraining the workforce participation and media diver- diversity, which are very different here than than in in the Nordics. So, if we, for example, talk about taxes. So there's this view in the current government that higher taxes weaken the uh, economy. We in the Nordics, we pay very high taxes, but we also spend them quite effectively. So we don't mind paying taxes. And it was interesting that you actually mentioned in your book that in Danish and Swedish word tax is cut, which is actually translated in treasure. So we don't think that paying taxes is a negative thing because we benefit how they've been distributed, that they're actually equally distributed in the in the societies. And you, uh, I understand you researched uh, 180 countries to find evidence that high levels of taxation cause weakening of the economy and the lower levels of taxation strengthen the economy. So can you tell us what were your findings? Yes, well, this was work uh, led by Richard Dennis, the Australian student, and Matt Goodenough in their chapter, which I contributed a small amount to. And... <clears throat> The findings are clear that there is no evidence to support the proposition which is put frequently by Liberal Party figures in Australia, for example, that uh, cutting taxes is is good for the economy. Um, There is, however, quite a lot of evidence that higher tax countries do better on many important measures in terms of prosperity, workforce participation, reducing inequality, and perhaps most starkly, in terms of the economics of happiness, coming back to that for a moment, although happiness may seem like a vague concept, there's actually a a strong and robust literature now on how to measure happiness, which is behind the World Happiness Reports. And and perhaps one of the most striking figures from that chapter by Richard and Matt and myself on taxes is that there is no country with lower taxes than Australia that is happier than Australia, but there are 10 countries with higher taxes than Australia that are happier. Australia, including, of course, Finland and the other Nordics and some other European countries too. So taxes, of course, you know, a lot of people would like to have more money in their own pocket. But if they understand that by paying their taxes, they receive services in return, and in the case of the Nordic countries, that includes extensive paid parental leave, it includes an adequate 
unemployment payment if you lose a job. It includes skills retraining. It includes affordable early childhood education and care and other forms of education at secondary and university levels. Then you connect the taxes you pay to the services you get. And everyone knows in life that you get what you pay for. And yet some people in America and Australia seem to think you can get every good thing without contributing. You can't. It doesn't work like that. So this is about the social contract. People pay taxes from which they benefit, and that is what binds our society together. Mm, that's exactly that's how how we live our lives in the Nordics, and it hasn't really made us lazy. You know, we work very hard, and we are very prosperous societies, so um, we can definitely prove it wrong. Now, the other uh, topic that which is very close to my heart is gender equality. And we are pretty strong in that in the Nordics. And according to World Economic Forum, Sweden is the fourth uh, most gender equal country in the world, you know, followed by Iceland, Finland and Norway. So the issues here are quite different. Um, And the funny for me is that to think about that the Australia got the, gave the voting rights first in the world to women, but it seemed that it stopped there. I don't know if you've seen the recent documentaries, uh, Julia Girard's strong female lead and Annabelle Grapp's misrepresented. Mm. It's quite shocking to learn those things, how how badly women have been treated in politics and in, in the society in Australia. So what were your findings and wh- how do you think that can be changed in Australia? Yes, well, I think the the fact that Australia gave the vote early to women was part of many innovations with the vote that Australia led in the in the nineteenth sorry the yes the nineteenth century the second half of the nineteenth century and that was that reflected the fact that Australia then it was a different place from America and it was a different place from Britain because the British settlers primarily of Australia at that time tended to be more working class and more politically radical than the countries they than the country they'd left. And so um Australia's sense of egalitarianism comes from that and the convict heritage from Britain. And those early rights to vote were part of Australia's social policy achievements. But you're right in saying that giving the women the vote didn't lead to significant participation of women in Australian politics. The egalitarianism that Australia had when it had it, was a very male-dominated egalitarianism. It was an economic egalitarianism between blokes, if you like. It didn't include women enough, and there's a lot of work being done on this by historians like Marilyn Lake. And we've seen those programs you mentioned are making it very clear how badly we're doing now in Australia, why women are angry, and the gender equality and culture crisis in Parliament House Canberra has has shown very clearly how far behind we are. And the evidence is clear from Nordic countries that the more women that participate in politics, become members of parliament, the better the political culture is and the better policies for women result. So we've made some progress in Australia. I mean, the, the, the Labor Party adopted affirmative action targets and it has many more women than it, uh, than it used to, but it's still more like in the 30%, not the 50% almost in the Nordic countries. As we speak, actually, Iceland yesterday or the day before had an election 
which looked like it had, for the first time in Europe, possibly the world, but certainly in Europe, for the first time in Europe, had elected a parliament of which most of the members were women, more than mm. it. <laughs> Uh, and we put out a tweet at the Nordic Policy Centre following the president of Iceland to that effect. Unfortunately, there was a recount and um, they fell slightly short. Um, so okay. Okay. <laughs> but they're very close. Um, so increasing the number of women is extremely important and, and uh, Australia has fallen behind. It's also rather ironic that Australia has fallen behind because there was a time when Australia was leading in, in one important policy area, which we look at in the book, which is in terms of gender budgeting. Australia innovated that in the 1980s. That is not putting at the heart of economic decision-making of a nation. You cannot make decisions before taking into account whether they will increase or decrease or otherwise affect inequality between women and men. Australia did that for a time, but stopped doing it. The Nordic countries took up that idea and they still do it. And therefore, gender equality is reinforced rather than reduced by policies. And we want, to, we want to take that back and learn some more things from Sweden and other countries' leadership in that respect. Very important topic. Hmm. Now, the third thing I want to discuss is um, from your book is the press freedom. Hmm. And I have to say, first thing in the morning, the first media I read is actually Finnish housing in Sanomat. Because of I trust that media and I know that it's not politically influenced uh, and it's always been been like that. And I know that Finland is one of the top countries in the world having transparent press and, and press freedom. Again, it's not perfect, but there's no private murder type of media companies that would able to influence the politics. And... Uh, In Nordics, you know, we have, was it almost 20 public service um, broadcasting TV channels and radio channels. So it's, it's very, it's very important. It's very like a natural thing to have a, a media that you trust. But it is very, very different here in Australia. And, you know, I, I don't actually, I only watch ABC and SBS. I don't know what's national uh, other, other channels. So how do you think? that can be changed in Australia. Yes, well, that, that's a big issue. And we had, a, we had a webinar on it recently with the current chair of the um, Senate Inquiry into Media Diversity, uh, Senator Sarah Hanson-Young. And the fact that there is a Senate Inquiry into Media diversity or lack of it in Australia is the initiative in part of former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who signed a petition concerned about the toxic influence of Rupert Murdoch's media in Australia and its monopoly and its dominance, which got a lot of signatures um, and support. And there's a real appetite for changing it. Rupert Murdoch, of course, won't be around forever. And the media landscape is changing. We still have the ABC, which is a public broadcaster, so is SBS, It's under. It's frequently under threat uh, in terms of funding reductions. Um, I know you've been in Australia for a while, Satu. I don't know. Were you here in 1987? No, I was not here. Yes. Well, there was a campaign then um, by the then director of the ABC, trying to demonstrate how much Australians got from having the ABC for at a, 
for a very small cost. And he and the campaign said, your ABC only costs you eight cents a day. And that seemed pretty reasonable to me, eight cents a day, to be able to turn on the, the radio and the television and get trust, trusted news and information. Um, now, however, the funding cuts to the ABC mean that they only get four cents a day per Australian. So they've been halved. Finland is spends more than twice what Australia does on public broadcasting. Norway spends triple what Australia spends on public broadcasting. And so stopping the, the erosion of the ABC is one thing. In terms of the lack of diversity, particularly in newspapers, um, well, anywhere where Rupert Murdoch's media operate, there are problems, whether it's Australia, Britain, America. They're the main places where they operate. English-speaking countries where he has acquired immense political influence and, of course, has been criticised, including um, in Britain, for his disgraced News of the World tabloid newspaper hacking into the phone of a murdered schoolgirl, Millie Dowling, and he was scrutinised by the House of Commons where the former Deputy Labor Party leader in Britain, Tom Watson, suggested that he was running a mafia organisation. Accountability of the media needs to improve in Australia and in Britain and America. Well, how do we do that? Well, one of the things that we found interesting and that Ebony Bennett and Maria Ray uh, explore and explain in their chapter in the book is that Nordic countries, particularly Norway actually, have subsidies to ensure diversity. So they have long had for decades, subsidies so that the second newspaper in a, a particular town or city gets some support to ensure it stays viable so that town or city is not reduced to one newspaper only. The funds are distributed on the basis of that, not about content of politics or party affiliation, and they're broadly supported uh, as part of Norwegian policy. And the amazing thing is that despite having those public subsidies to newspapers, which, of course, some some people, and certainly Rupert Murdoch, would say is Soviet-style interference with the free press, despite or perhaps because they have those public subsidies, Norway is number one on the World Press Freedom Index. So freedom maybe needs subsidies to ensure diversity in the same way that public broadcasting gets subsidies. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, of course, doesn't mind subsidies from government, as so long as they're to his company, to his profit. But these are subsidies that are actually based on policy ideas for the public interest. And I think it's really interesting to find out about them. It won't be easy to um, to talk about those in Australia and, and to advance those ideas, but they've already been mentioned in the last major report on into the Australian media, the Finkelstein report in 2012. That mentioned the Norwegian and other Nordic uh, subsidies. And it said we need to keep looking at other places in the world and ensure Australia's media diversity doesn't get worse. And given that it has got worse since then, maybe we need to look very closely at it. And I hope Senator Hanson Young and the Senate Inquiry will look closely at it. Well, that'll be a very interesting um, chapter if there's any changes, because if you think about this, four big media companies and they kind of pretty much control the media uh, 90%. And of course, there's Google, Netflix, and Facebook, but it'll be a very different challenge. And, and as you mentioned, all the cuts to ABC all the time is is, um, is very unfortunate. So hope this will be changed. I mean, there's there's quite a few other topics that you have uh, in, in the book, but if we think about these 
three things that we mentioned. How do you think, as we mentioned before, what can anyone do to if they think that any of these policies and ways of doing differently could be adapted to Australia? So what can everyday person do to actually influence the decision makers and think about, well, I, I want my, my children to have better education. I want press freedom. We want, uh, we want to get better services. Yeah. I don't mind paying more tax. So what, what can anyone do here in Australia? Well, I think, um, you know, it's important to realize we don't start from nowhere. I mean, we have already adopted some of these concepts and ideas that we, for instance, the fact we have any paid parental leave in Australia is because of Scandinavian influences. Sweden invented paid parental leave that is something broader than maternity leave in 1974. We finally adopted it 10 years or so ago. It's at a less curation and lower wage than the Nordic countries. We've, we've got paternity leave as a small part of it, but nowhere near as extensive as in the Nordic countries. And there's a lot of interest, including the federal opposition, the federal Australian Labor Party opposition has policy now to increase paid parental leave in Australia to six months at, at a replacement wage, not at a minimum wage. That's very Nordic-style policy. So there's a lot of push in that direction. We also, we've, we've long had the ombudsman, and the ombudsman is a Norse invention. We've had a Kilden's ombudsman or Kilden's commissioner. <clears throat> we've had, we're having in Victoria now the rollout of three-year-old kindergarten, which is part of making early childhood education and care affordable and available sooner, um, Nordic style. We have New South Wales where a, even the, a Liberal Party government or a coalition government led by the Liberal Party has declared that it wants New South Wales to be the Norway of the South with the rollout of electric vehicles. We've got a whole chapter on electric vehicles. Um, these are things that are happening. And what we're arguing is that we should consolidate them and go further. And everyone can contribute to this by being a citizen Voting according to how the parties you think move in this direction. Of course, we encourage you to buy the book and talk about it, share the ideas, uh, discuss them, you know, discuss them with your friends and colleagues. And, you know, perhaps some people will be surprised to think about, you know, maybe higher taxes aren't a bad thing. Maybe subsidies are needed to improve press freedom, but it's all part of the learning process from other parts of the world. Absolutely, yes. Let's hope that uh, big change happening. Is It's kind of interesting that actually I thought just last night that the COVID has a little bit influenced a change, the thinking here in Australia because of, for example, the job keepers and job uh, savers payments. That is quite a Nordic way of doing things. So that's a big new way of, I think, that has changed in the society. So hopefully there will be other other similar things to follow also here in Australia. Yes, wasn't it interesting that the, the big things that were done after COVID struck, the first big policy steps were firstly to make childcare free, secondly to double the unemployment payment, and, and thirdly to have a big wage subsidy. Those are very Nordic policies. My co-editor, Rod Campbell, rang me up and said, look, Australia is going Nordic. The only difference is there's, there's not as many Volvos and there's less snow. <laughs> And, and so it's we, true. we could keep it going, you know. <laughs> exactly. And I, the other, actually, I have to say that I think New Zealand is almost like the Nordics in the South. 
So all these things that I, I think they have adopted more these Nordic policies than Australia has, and their way of doing things is quite. Um, sometimes I find quite similar than in the Nordics, just in the in the neighbourhood. I think that's an interesting point because. I mean, New Zealand, of course, is a smaller country than Australia. And there's something, one of the things that comes up in these kinds of debates is can small countries do things better than big countries? And it's certainly true, I think, that small countries can change quicker than big countries. New Zealand has done some things uh, which are in advance of Australia. And Jacinda Ardern is an incredibly impressive leader, I think, and another exemplar of a, a strong woman leader who makes a difference Margot Volström is another from Sweden who was foreign minister who we've been pleased to have a chapter from in the book. I'd say also about New Zealand, one of the things New Zealand's done in following Nordic policies that Australia hasn't yet is uh, the ban on smacking children. And this, of course, another Swedish invention, 1979, Sweden led the world in saying no, questioning the idea. I've always found this a very strange idea that you know, we say in a society that you, you're not allowed to hit anybody except the most defenceless, vulnerable, smallest in that, you know, i.e. children, in a family context, it's okay. Physical punishment. Mm. Um, now, Sweden started the ending of that, and they didn't do it in a punitive way. They did it through education and, you know, teaching that you don't – it's not effective to, to be violent towards children if you want to teach them something because they get the totally wrong message. All they know is pain, distrust, and fear. So Sweden initiated that, and dozens and dozens of countries have followed, and New Zealand is one of the countries that has followed. Australia's yet to follow. So that's one of many examples where Nordic countries have pioneered things which other countries have followed, and that could be an important next indicator of whether Australia is progressing in, in, in a more Nordic direction in the way New Zealand has. Well, that would be a very big uh, improvement if that would go through here in Australia. Of course, it's uh, it's very unfortunate it's not here yet. Now, do you have any other maybe policies that you found, you know, that you were very impressed by and you would think that would be very useful to adapt them somehow in, in the Australian society? Yes, absolutely. Well, we've mentioned electric vehicles. Uh, Audrey Quick has a chapter on how the Norwegian government has given incentives, which have brought more about. I mentioned Volvo before. I notice Volvo's advertisements now basically saying they're only going to make electric cars. That's that's their, And they're doing that as, as a highly successful business because they know that's the future. Environmental policy, the role that Nordic countries have played, not only being the first countries to tax carbon, but also, of course, the the former Norwegian prime minister who's still alive, Parol um, Harlem Brundtland, was Prime Minister of Norway after having been Environment Minister and then for a time went on to chair the United Nations Commission on Sustainable Development, which became known as the Brundtland Commission. So that was an example where Norway and Sweden, uh, sorry, in that case Norway, was exercising an influence in global affairs, um, bigger than you'd expect from a, from a small country. Another time Norway did so was the Oslo Accords, where for a brief time, but a brief but a very important time, certainly the, the time in my lifetime when there was more hope of peace in the Middle East than any other time I can remember, the Oslo Accords brought together the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the former Prime Minister of Israel, together with the American then President Bill Clinton, for a peace in the Middle East, which unfortunately didn't last, but that was an example of Norway being a good citizen, contributing and building up trust. 
Margot Wallström, the Swedish foreign minister, said that she's continuing that. Sweden, under Olaf Palme, very proudly fought against apartheid. Australia did too. So that's, not, that's something that Sweden and Australia can both be proud of. They were some of the strongest, probably the two strongest countries in the Western democratic world, so-called, who, who, uh, who really campaign hard against apartheid. And feminist foreign policy that Margot Wallström um, put forward talks about the fact, the shocking fact, it was a new discovery for me to hear this, that one in every five girls in the world under the age of 18 is married, which means that they cannot have normal lives because they are not independent. They are, And even before they're married, they're not having equal opportunity with boys and they're becoming parents at very young ages. And, and in their foreign policy, Sweden seeks to find ways to prevent those problems and to be a good global citizen in terms of provision of quality foreign aid uh, and promoting gender equality as an important international value. So these are all inspiring things um, which Australia can do on the world stage. And we're coming up, you know, as we speak, by the time this podcast is broadcast, the Glasgow Climate Conference may have commenced. It's, it, as we speak, it's unclear whether our Prime Minister is even going to bother going. It depends on whether uh, the National Party will allow him to say something about an Australian target for net zero emissions by 2050. So the international stage can be very influential. Um, Australia cannot hide from international scrutiny. And indeed, we could we could become prouder and more influential in our own right. Sorry to have gone on a bit there about foreign policy. The, the one other thing we haven't mentioned yet that's in the book, one other chapter is on prisoner reform, which I'm happy to talk more about if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Mentioned that was quite interesting, actually. Well, that's written by uh, Anna Eriksson, who's uh, Swedish-born, been in Australia a long time. Obviously, there's something going right in Australia because we have quite a few Swedes, Finns, Norwegians and Danes come over here and stay, like yourself and uh, Anna. And um, Parsi Solberg, the global expert on Finland school education, is, is in Sydney. Our National Children's Commissioner, and Hollands, it turns out, is half Finnish. So maybe we've got we've we've uncovered a, a bigger diaspora of the Nordic countries than we had expected. Anna's written a great chapter in an area where she's actually a, a global leader, and that is different ways of approaching the punishment of crime and achieving prisoner rehabilitation. So taking rehabilitation seriously. And one of the things the Murdoch Press and other simplistic tabloid media do, of course, is that if someone commits a crime, it's very easy to demonise them and, and portray them as villains and to make people perhaps feel a little bit of satisfied about their anger about a crime to say, we're going to lock them up and throw away the key. They'll never get out. Well, in reality, nearly all prisoners who go to jail do come out. And if they come out angrier, more bitter, harder, more damaged than when they went in, then society's not being protected at all. If they come out rehabilitated and society is being protected, and of course many people who are in prison in Australia are there for reasons to do with the fact we, we don't invest enough in early childhood education and care. We don't tackle mental health problems and prevention of drug abuse enough. Now, the most startling statistic we can quotes is that in Norway, the rate of return to prison by people who leave is about 20%. In Australia, it's 50%. One in two people who leave Australian jails will be back soon in jail. 
only one in five in Norway. So something's working there. So I think that's that's important. And, and, and in terms of the gender equality, one of the other most startling statistics is that, as you said, Finns paying taxes and having welfare doesn't make them lazy. On the contrary, Nordic countries with their universal welfare and high taxes have higher workforce participation rates than countries with less tax and less welfare. And Sweden, incredibly um, for some, because it gives 16 months paid parental leave, a minimum of which must three months must be taken by fathers, it has a rate of workforce participation by women in full-time jobs, which is 20 percentage points higher than Australia, 20 percentage points. Now, imagine the extra tax revenue that comes to government from the fact that 20 percentage points higher number of women are working in full-time jobs in Sweden. It's obviously better for the women, better for their children, better for the families. They're less likely to have problems of poverty in old age. It's good for the society and the economy. And it happens because they have time off when they most need it. It is affordable to come back to work. It's beneficial to come back to work. They're not penalised by a private childcare system which is chasing profit and wages are adequate and so on. So these are some of the lessons and um, we're going to keep advocating the results from our research on this. Mm, that uh, sounds absolutely fantastic. And it's quite interesting that you quote uh, Scott Morrison in your book who says, if you have a goal, you get a goal. And in Nordics, we will have a goal because of we are much more supported by our society. So we are ready to work hard and make a make a good effort. And it's definitely not have made us lazy as we discussed. So it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. If people would like to follow your work and and buy the book, where should they go? Um, the book is available in, in many bookshops, probably most bookshops in Australia, and that, of course, is difficult with lockdowns at the moment, but many bookshops are operating a click-and-collect or a call-and-collect service if you're in a lockdown city. Great way to integrate it into your daily exercise, um, ring or uh, buy the book online, click and collect it, The Nordic Edge, Policy Possibilities for Australia. If you're in Sydney, you can get it at Dimmix or Glee Books, for example, and in Melbourne, Dimmix or Readings and many other bookshops. Otherwise, feel free to go to the Melbourne University Publishing website, mup.com.au, and you'll find The Nordic Edge book there, and you can buy it direct from them, and you'll get it in a couple of days. Um, we hope you'll, you'll be interested in it, and um, I'm very happy for people to contact me via Deakin University, my email address and so on, if they want to discuss any of these issues further. Great. Thank you. I will put the links in our show notes so people have no excuse to um, buy the book and, and follow your work. So thank you so much. It's been absolutely delightful to talk to you today and uh, I encourage everybody to go and, and get the book. Thank you. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you enjoyed this podcast, I would appreciate if you would leave a quick rating and review. You can also find Nordic Insights on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening. Boy Hyvin, Hadi Sopra, take care.